and we're going to dive into our time together, okay? So there with your copy of God's Word in front of you, here is the Word of the Lord, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning as those in dependence upon you who need you every hour we need you. Lord, we realize you have saved us and brought us into relationship with yourself and you have put us in a race, a race that is the Christian life. Father, instruct our hearts this morning from this text. Remind us of what you've called us to and find us faithful. Might your spirit put strength in every stride for our lives as we take one step in front of the other of faithful obedience. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the Christian life is a race of endurance. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon, we might call it. And if we're going to run this race effectively, there are four areas that God wants us to think about from these verses. We're going to be encouraged in first our liberation from the first part of verse 1, and this will answer the question, what do we need to free ourselves from to run the race effectively? What do we need to free ourselves from to run the race, the Christian race, effectively? Secondly, we'll look at our occupation, second part of verse 1. What have we been called to? What is our occupation as Christians? We'll take a look at that there. And then verse 2, our preoccupation. What are we to be preoccupied with as we run the race? What are we to be fixated upon? And then finally, we'll look at our consideration, verse 3. What are we to think reasonably about in this race? So again, our liberation our occupation, our preoccupation, and our consideration. First, if we're going to run effectively in this Christian race, we've got to free ourselves from some things. Our liberation for the race comes in the first part of verse 1. We come into this section, though, on the heels of the faithful examples of chapter 11. If we were working expositionally through this book, we would see the importance of Hebrews chapter 11, as uh, we move into Hebrews chapter 12. And the significance of that chapter is that we have in that chapter a lengthy list of examples 
um, that stretches across the whole of Old Covenant history, amounting to close to 4,000 years of history. And all these characters that the author of Hebrew, Hebrews highlights, they shared the same characteristic, which was faith. The author here in verse 1 of chapter 12 refers to them as so great a cloud of witnesses. They are the cloud of witnesses that the author is referring to. They are witnesses for us of genuine faith, and it's as we observe their lives of faith that we gain strength for our race. They went through hardships and suffering. They were mocked in their culture. They did bold things for the Lord. They are a strong witness of what faith in action looks like. Hebrews 11, with what we see with faith in action, is one of these themes that fits into a larger theme within the Scripture that faith is not just something that we make a mental assent to, just kind of some facts that we believe. The author of James says that there's a kind of faith that even the demons have and they shudder. They believe that that God is such and such, but in reality, when it works out in the lives of, of demons, faith doesn't act, faith doesn't submit, faith doesn't come under the lordship of God. But as we see in Hebrews 11, these These people, they had not only just professed their faith in the Lord in Old Covenant history, but they acted on their faith. And that, brothers and sisters, is true, genuine faith. Faith acts. Faith works. And as we come into Hebrews chapter 12, we have those witnesses behind us. And it's because of that strong witness that we are challenged to, as the text says, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. For to run the Christian race effectively, we must liberate ourselves of some things. The author of Hebrews gives us two categories of divestments. The first is weights. Notice that, weights. Any runner knows that if he is to limit uh, resistance and not impede his speed, he must remove any unnecessary weights, Uh, weights is a hindrance to his running. Well, in the same way, the Christian must remove things from his life that hinder his progress in the Christian life. A hindrance, says Kent Hughes, is something otherwise good that weighs you down spiritually. Could be a friendship, an association, an event, a place, a habit, a pleasure, an entertainment, an honor. But if this otherwise good thing drags you down, you must strip it away. Apostle Paul said in Romans 13, 14, make no provision for the flesh. I think this takes wisdom. We must be aware of ourselves enough to spot what things create environments that weaken our consciences and lead us to sin. This can be something as simple as our technology, uh, our social media. Uh, These things can be a blessing, but they can also hinder us from spending time with the Lord or people we love. Uh, Someone shared this story with me a while back. An old golfer friend of mine speaks out. We had power cut at our house this morning and my PC, laptop, TV, DVD, iPad, and my new surround sound music system were all shut down. 
Then I discovered that my mobile phone battery was dead, and to top it off, it was raining outside, so I couldn't play golf. I went into the kitchen to make coffee, and then I remembered that this also needs power, so I sat and talked with my wife for a couple of hours. She seems like a nice person. (laughs) You know, sometimes our conveniences become hindrances, right? We must lay aside every weight so we can focus on God and others. But secondly, we need to lay aside sins. While weights hinder progress in the Christian race, sin kills progress. Sin in these verses is something that ensnares, uh, like an animal that gets caught in a snare when we live in unrepentant sin. We're, We're trapped just like an animal is. Trapped from making progress in the Christian life. Trapped from being effective for the Lord. Trapped from bearing fruit for the kingdom of Christ. Sin ensnares us, and it keeps us from being effective in the Christian race. Now, this probably goes without mentioning, but sin is obviously a serious matter, isn't it? Um, in our day, we don't really take sin very seriously. In our day, you know, what, what is sin is actually called something that's good. We have a reversal, don't we? We have in our day calling, you know, evil good and good evil. That's the culture in, in which we live. D.A. Carson wrote this in 1978. He said, Our generation treats sin lightly. Sin in our society is better thought of as aberration or an illness. It is to be treated, not condemned and repented of, and it must not be suppressed for fear of psychological damage. That's the 1970s. How far have we come, church, as a society in the downgrading of the reality of of sin. Here's Carson's, though, sage biblical advice for us who know we need to take sin seriously. He says this, he says, we are to deal drastically with sin. We must not pamper it, flirt with it, enjoy nibbling a little of it around the edges. We are to hate it, crush it, and dig it out. By the way, this makes me think of... um, when I talk to my children, we generally don't say the word hate in our house, but when it comes to sin, we say we hate it. There is something that we can hate, and that's sin. And I think Carson is right. We're to treat sin like Jesus said, right? If, you're, if your right eye causes you to sin, cut it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And obviously, he's, he's being not literal here, but figurative. Jesus wants us to communicate, or he rather wants to communicate to us in stark terms the horrific consequences of sin. And he warns us to take drastic measures to remove the sin from our lives. We must remove sin from our lives. But like I've heard Pastor Ben say before, it's like gardening. You can't just remove the weeds, right? You have to replace it with something good. The rest of these verses deal with the replacement. What do we replace sin with? If we were to kill sin, what are we supposed to replace it with? We might say it this way. How do we effectively run the Christian race? And the author of Hebrews, as we turn to the end of verse 1, answers that question. He says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. This is to be our occupation to run the Christian race with endurance. 
Endurance here is the key word in these verses. It appears, by the way, if you look in your text there in verse 1, verse 2, and verse 3, this uh, word comes from the Greek word hupomeno, uh, referring to the capacity to hold out or bear up in the face of difficulty. So to bear up under difficulty is what this word is saying. And of course, that assumes as we apply this to the Christian life or the Christian race, the Christian race is difficult. It is difficult. I mean, Jesus said in Matthew 7, 14, that the way is hard that leads to life. And any honest evaluation of this race will affirm what Jesus said. The Christian life is not easy and that it is costly. It comes with many challenges. But God's, uh, God says here in Hebrews 12 to to persevere, to run in such a way that you bear up under your trials. It's like what James says, Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. We should make the most of our trials and bear up under them. A little caveat here, this doesn't mean that it's sinful to want to be removed from certain trials in life. In 1 Corinthians 10.13, we learn that God will provide us a way of escape under temptation, under trial. So it's not sinful to want out of a trial. But I think our generally knee-jerk reaction is to only want out of the trial instead of submitting to God's agenda in our trial. Our Lord Jesus is a great example to follow as one who submitted to the Father's agenda in His trial. We Read about how he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane just before his arrest and trials and crucifixion. He said this, remove this cup from me, praying to the Father, yet not my will but yours be done. Yet not my will but yours be done. Jesus was reserved to the will of his Father. He said, yet not my will but yours be done. The race, church, is difficult, but we are called to endure. And I think right expectation here is super helpful. Our occupation is, again, not a sprint. It's a marathon. Um, This is something that I really didn't understand well when I was young in my faith. I uh, thought things like, I'm going to memorize the book of James today. Yeah, it was just silly. Um, a little bit overly ambitious, right? Seth, was that you, brother? Are you shaking your head in in agreement? That was you too? Good. I'm not alone. Thank you. Yes, I like it. So I think early on in the Christian life, I realized that I wanted instant Christianity, uh, fast food, spirituality, get rich quick, maturity. I didn't understand endurance. I didn't understand that the race of a Christian is a marathon not a sprint. Jay Adams is right on when he said, you may have sought and tried to obtain instant godliness. (laughs) There's no such thing. Uh, We want somebody to give us three easy steps to godliness and we'll take them next Friday and be godly. The trouble is godliness doesn't come that way. I think he's exactly right. The Christian race is a lifelong marathon and we must run it with endurance. Amen.
And the best way to run this race is by doing what the author of Hebrews says here in verse 2. Here's our preoccupation. Let us run with endurance looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The challenge here is to preoccupy ourselves with the faith of Jesus as we endure in our own race. This expression right here, looking to Jesus or fixing our eyes, is from one Greek word, aphorao. It's an intensification of the word to look or to see. The word means to direct one's attention without distraction. That's key right there, without distraction. Uh, With this word, the object of your attention has all of your undistracted focus. And in verse 2, we we must set our undistracted gaze on Jesus, not looking to the left or to the right. While the temptations may be all around us to get distracted from this single occupation, we must fix our eyes upon the Lord Jesus alone. But what exactly is it about Jesus that would demand our attention? Well, the text says that he is the founder and perfecter of our faith. This is important. Faith here has to do with the response of faith as opposed to like a body of truth, which is uh, what we might conclude if the translation said the faith. But a better translation here is just simply faith as a reference to the response of faith, as a, a reference to our faithfulness. And since the focus here is on the response of faith, Hebrews, the author here, is drawing our attention to the faithful obedience that Jesus demonstrated toward the will and promises of God. And he is, as the text says, the founder of this response of faith and the perfecter of this response of faith. A founder is one who begins or originates A perfecter is one who brings something to a conclusion. So you can see there, the beginning and the end are at work in these two terms. What is being communicated then is that Jesus lived by faith from beginning to the end of his life. Jesus perfectly responded to the will of the Father in his life. Jesus himself said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. He was saying, I live for you, Father. Your word, your will is what I live by. Your word and your will is what I submit to. And Jesus perfectly obeyed his Father from beginning to the end of his life. I think there's no better place to point to in the life of Christ than in his passion as an example of the kind of faith that the Holy Spirit wants to stir within us, his people. We read about Jesus here in Hebrews who for the joy that was set before him endured what? The cross, despising its shame. Christ endured the bloody cross of crucifixion. I think we need to remember that crucifixion was a very shameful thing. It was invented by the Persians, but perfected by the Romans. Uh, Crucifixion was the most effective form of shaming criminals for their misdeeds. In the first century B.C., the Roman politician Cicero wrote that crucifixion was, quote, a most cruel and disgusting punishment. 
At a later time, he said the very word cross should be far removed, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. For it is not only the actual occurrence of these things or the endurance of them, but indeed the mere mention of them that is unworthy of a Roman citizen and a free man. Crucifixion was shameful to even mention, to even speak of. The Jews would have thought the same. Deuteronomy 21-23 says, Anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. A Jew hanging on a cross would be considered by the religious community a curse from God. And think about that because the Lord Jesus Christ lived a perfect life from beginning to end. He went to the cross, not for any crime that he had committed. The perfect spotless lamb being put on a cross, nailed to this tree of shame, yet never having done anything wrong. And the author of Hebrews is saying that the Lord Jesus despised that. He didn't even make a huge consideration of that because he knew he was going to the cross, one, to pay for our sins, but one, to gain a crown, or two, to gain a crown. He went there to gain the crown. And matter of fact, that's exactly what the author of Hebrews draws our attention to. Notice that at the latter half of verse 2, he tells us that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Before Jesus could reign, he had to endure the cross. It's a beautiful theology here. It was the cross before the crown. Since Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith, we should expect nothing less. We should expect the cross in this life before the crown in the next one. Amen? Um, A man by the name of George Bernard was preaching at a youth event in 1912. While he was preaching, the young adults began to ridicule him. Bernard fell into some discouragement as a result of that. But turning to the Word of God, he was strengthened, and instead of feeling dejected, he began to rejoice that he was identified with his Savior. Out of his experience, he wrote these words that you know. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross. Till my trophies at last I lay down, I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. We must bear the cross before we wear the crown. So we've seen our liberation, our occupation, preoccupation. We close with our consideration. Did you notice that all rhymed? The author says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. This word for consider in the Greek means to reason with careful deliberation. What we are to carefully think about is if Jesus experienced unjust suffering from others, then we will experience suffering as well. And if Jesus endured such suffering, then you must follow his example by enduring such suffering as well. The Apostle Peter writes similarly, quote, For you were called to unjust suffering, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow in his steps. 1 Peter 2. 21. Uh, church, we must expect suffering. Uh, it's not an option. When you got saved, you got enlisted into suffering. 
And there's a real practical benefit then to considering the suffering of Jesus as a pattern for our own suffering. The author says says it here at the end of verse 3, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In other words, if you're careful to recognize that because Jesus suffered, you too will suffer, then it will keep you from becoming weary in your souls and losing heart. Church, this is about expectation. This is about what we should expect as Christians. And in the midst of the trials and the difficulties that we all go through, that the things that come into our life by God's providence that are hard and difficult to bear up under, we need to remember that we are following in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus Christ. That the struggles and the challenges we faced are for the purpose of conforming us to the image of Christ. Right? Um, it's like the, the sword that's put into the heat to be pulled out and to be hit by the one who's creating the sword. The Lord puts us into trials, the heat of those circumstances to pull us out of those trials, to shape us into the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord God wants us to look like Jesus. And so we should expect in this life, not a crown, but a cross. That's what God has called us to in this life, a cross before the crown. Amen. Let's be faithful to the Lord even if we find ourselves becoming weary with the Christian life, weary with the discipline that we have to subject ourselves to, or weary with killing sin in our lives, or growing weary because of the opposition we face in our culture. And we're facing opposition in this culture, aren't we? For being Christians. Standing on God's word and saying, thus saith the Lord is not a popular thing in our day, but we must do it. We must be faithful to this. And if opposition comes in our life, so be it. God is God. He's sovereign. He's doing something for the purpose of conforming us to the image of Christ. If we will experience unjust suffering, it's because we are following in the footsteps of our Lord. Amen. Let's pray.